Welcome to the Oakcrest Podcast Channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, the 7th Annual O'Donovan Humanities Lecture Speakers give a reflection on ancient and modern grief, presence, and absence. A pair of scholars, Emily Austin and her father, Victor Lee Austin, look at grief from two angles. Emily, a classics scholar, takes up an ancient story of grief and anger from Homer's Iliad. Victor Lee Austin, a priest and theologian in the Episcopal Church, ponders the loss of his wife at the end of a struggle with brain disease. Both find tension between absence and presence. Achilles undertakes many futile efforts to restore his broken life after he loses Patroclus, and a father finds another presence precisely in the midst of his loss. I'm delighted to introduce a dear friend of mine, Emily Austin, and her father, Canon Victor Austin, who I was thinking is also um, definitely a dear friend of Emily's, <laughs> a new friend of mine. Um, but they are the first father-daughter lectures we've had. And this is very special because in a girls' school, we see in a vivid way the beauty and importance of a strong father-daughter bond. Over the years, I've had several fathers tell me that Oakcrest has helped forge a friendship, has helped them forge a friendship with their daughter that they might not have had if she had attended a different school. And as you can imagine, um, this is one of the best things I could possibly hear. Emily Austin is an assistant professor of classics at the University of Chicago. Her scholarship focuses on the interplay of language and meaning in the Homeric poems and Greek poetry more generally. She recently published a book titled Grief and the Hero, The Futility of Longing in the Iliad. I had the fun opportunity to take long walks last summer in a hot, muggy Indiana. Sounds very exciting. <laughs> Indiana fields and dunes uh, with Emily and others, and she brought along her mother's field guide of flowers. So looking at wildflowers, and I got to experience the enthusiasm that she puts into anything. And we were eagerly, eagerly, that's my Boston accent coming here, eagerly looking for um, cone flowers and all kinds of things. But I, I got to experience, I mean, I've known Emily and I know how enthusiastic and fun she is about everything. But um, just to give you, that was my kind of like, oh, this is, um, this is a little, little taste of this. Um, she must be great in the classroom. Um, I know personally a few of her friends, few undergraduates that she taught at the University of Chicago, and um, they are here, two of them. So I asked one of them uh, who is here what she, she could share about Emily, and this is what she wrote. Um, Julius wrote, she said, when Emily taught me, uh, usually, usually simply in how she listened and guided conversation, um, not only led me to a greater understanding of suffering in the Iliad, the book we read together, but also in an indirect way of the suffering of our Lord on the cross. Through her, Isaac, her husband, my husband, and I learned the ultimate lesson, the only real thing there is to learn. I don't think we would have become Catholic if we hadn't met her, which is probably the best thing one can say about a teacher. And certainly Pat O'Donovan would be thrilled to the core to hear that. By the way, Pat is alive. <laughs> she came to the first O'Donovan lecture. She was about 80, um, loved it, and um, has not come back. She's, um, <laughs> she's up in Boston. 
Um, now about, I guess, about 87, and um, just thrilled that we, we keep doing this. Anyway, in tonight's lecture, Emily is going to address grief and anger from Homer's Iliad. And after, she's going to be followed by her father, Canon Austin, who's been a priest for more than 35 years and is serving as a as theologian in residence for the Episcopal Diocese of Dallas. He writes on ethics as well as the intersections of theology with everyday life. His books include Up With Authority, Christian Ethics, A Guide for the Perplexed, Losing Susan, and most recently, Friendship, The Heart of Being Human. I read Losing Susan last December. I read it pretty much straight through. Um, so I was preparing, when I was preparing for tonight, I just went back to my copy and I found on page 91 in pencil, Joy. So I just want to share this with you from the book. He wrote, on September 29, 1978, I vowed to love Susan as my wife in sickness and in health for as long as, as, long as we were both alive. And he referenced their caring for basic bodily needs. And he went on to say, and this is what I really love and struck by, it is not only that I had to do these things for Susan, things that I did not foresee and for which I was usually quite unprepared. It is also not only that in doing these things, I found God to be with me and in the tensest moments to be present and helping me through. It is this, I found joy in doing these things. I will say no more. Without further ado, please welcome first Emily and then Canon Austin. Thank you so much. It's really, really fun to be here. My dad and I have never given a talk together. Um, but obviously, he's been a great inspiration to me um, in many ways. So, I'm also not used to speaking with Mike. So, um, so if you don't have a handout, um, there's a couple extra ones in the front. Maybe people could generally pass that some here or share with your neighbor. You don't need it. I will read everything on the handout, but just to help you follow because I'm going to go pretty deeply into the Iliad itself. So Homer's Iliad famously begins with the word rage. This almost 3,000-year-old war poem contains many reasons for anger. The violation of sacred rules of hospitality, the theft of a man's wife, unjust treatment from those in authority, dishonor, and social exile are among the many causes of anger in this poem. But the most persistent reason for anger in the Iliad is loss. On the battlefield in front of Troy, warrior after warrior loses a comrade and responds to that loss by killing the killer in turn. The words of handout one are almost a refrain. I have eased my heart somewhat of its grief for the slain Patroclus through the killing of even a lesser man. Handout two elaborates this pattern of battle where grief and loss give rise to anger and vengeance. I'll read this in full. Sorrow took the Trojans from head to foot, a sorrow unrestrained, not to be endured, since he was their city's stay, always, despite being a foreigner. For many peoples came with him, but among them he excelled in battle. And straight for the Greeks they aimed, straining, and Hector led them, angered because of serpent. So you, and I've folded there this arc from sorrow to anger. 
This evening I want to share with you one thread in this story of loss and anger, the story of Achilles. Through Achilles' story, the poet of the Iliad addresses why this pattern is so prevalent, why the grief of bereaved warriors turns into anger and vengeance. The poem begins with the word rage, but ends with a funeral, the funeral of the city's main defender without whom their city will be destroyed. We could say that the real story of the Iliad is a story of grief, grief and the actions that spiral out from it, the huge consequences of its underlying longings. So first, some context for Achilles' loss. So the Iliad begins in the 10th year of a campaign against Troy by a coalition of Greeks. The cause of the war was the theft of Helen by a Trojan prince. Now, Helen was married at the time to a Greek king, Menelaus. So after her theft, Menelaus' brother, Agamemnon, who's another more powerful Greek king, convinced most of the young men of Greece to go to war to win her back, and to punish Troy, and to gain honor and booty on the way. So Achilles joins this expedition as a young man, and he's leading a small group of men from his homeland, and he and his men are, are the best group of fighters at Troy, and he's the best of all of them. So that's the backstory. The Iliad doesn't begin with all this backstory. It begins with an incident in the 10th year of the war, which is a terrible insult that this king, this bigger king, Agamemnon, gives to Achilles, his best fighter. And Achilles, insulted, withdraws from the fighting in anger. So I'm going to skip over all the interesting aspects of this quarrel and Achilles' time apart, the, um, the first 15 books of this 24-book 20, poem are full of fighting, and for the most part, the Greeks are badly off without Achilles. They, they miss their, their best warrior. The Trojans in this time, led by their strongest defender, Hector, drive the Greeks all the way back to their camp along the shore and nearly burn their ships, which would cut them off from their escape and homecoming. So in this hour of danger, Achilles' closest friend, Patroclus, convinces Achilles to send him, Patroclus, out at the head of Achilles' men wearing Achilles' armor. So Patroclus' idea is we can then save the Greeks from annihilation, but Achilles can keep his word that he won't fight for this outrageous and insulting Agamemnon. Um, and Achilles is kind of holding out for something that will really make up for the insult, which he never gets. Achilles agrees to this compromise, and he sends his friend out to battle without him. Patroclus succeeds in saving the ships of the Greeks, but he presses the battle onto the walls of Troy, and there he is killed by Hector. So enter Achilles' grief. Achilles' grief permeates <coughs> the last third of the poem, separating him from his other companions, even as he returns to the Greek army and seeks battle with Hector. The most striking aspect of his grief is its characteristic shape of longing. And this is what I, was the beginning of my book. Achilles explicitly describes his response to the loss of Patroclus with the Greek word kobe, which is a kind of longing. And so there's two interesting things to note about this word. No one else in the Iliad describes their grief as a force of longing. More interestingly, the word does describe other situations in the Iliad. Trying to be louder. Um, that, and when it, so when kobe shows up in these other non-grief situations, its most common use is to describe the feeling a group of warriors have on the battlefield when their leader or their strong warrior is missing. 
So I have two examples on the handout. Handout three, Hector is, um, has gone into the, into the city of Troy and he meets all these women, his mom, his, um, his sister-in-law Helen, his wife, and they're all kind of slowing him down. And Helen at a certain point says sit down and he refuses to sit and he says, my spirit urges me to defend the Trojans since they already have Colthe for me in, in, my, in my absence. Another example, one of many examples, Poseidon, who's been forbidden by Zeus, this is the Greek god Poseidon, he's been forbidden by Zeus to keep helping the Greeks, and as he leaves, he goes into the sea, and the Greek heroes have this pulse for him, they long for him. So this feeling of wholeness, and an essential aspect of that wholeness missing, and what that whole group has. So this is the word pulse. And Achilles describes his loss of Patroclus in the same way, as though it's an, a felt absence that's rupturing what had formerly been whole, um, kind of like a tear in the fabric of his life. So he returns to the Greek army after the loss of Patroclus, and while he's back there, he refuses to eat before doing battle. And while he's refusing to eat, he remembers how Patroclus used to be the one who prepared their food. This is handout five. This is a lament he gives in this context of refusing food, and he says, Truly, once indeed you, Ilfatus, dearest of my comrades, yourself in our hut prepared the savory dinner quickly and deftly whenever the Achaeans were hastening to bring tearful war to the horse-taming Trojans. But now you lie here, your flesh torn, and my heart will have nothing of drink nor food, though they are here because of my longing for you. So in this lament, we see Achilles feeling the absence of what he used to have, a comrade in war, the one who prepared their food. And this absence makes him refuse food, even though he's surrounded by other men who are encouraging him to eat. He misses this shared life that he had with Patroclus, and he longs for it. Um, and there's a kind of disruption of his Achilles' experience of rupture, of lost wholeness, is even clearer in Book 24, which is the last book of the book. So, night after night in Book 24, Achilles is sleepless, remembering his dead friend and longing for him. And this is handout six. Achilles wept as he remembered his beloved comrade, and sleep did not take him, sleep who conquers all. But Achilles kept tossing back and forth, longing for Patroclus' manhood and good strength and all the deeds he accomplished with him and the griefs he suffered, cutting away through wars of men and difficult leaves. This example elaborates on what longing for Patroclus means. It's the person and the life shared, the deeds they did together, the sufferings they endured together, the wars they fought, the seas they crossed. So shared life is how the poem depicts Achilles and Patroclus' relationship. The two were raised as brothers. They seem to have fought constantly side by side. When they go to Troy, their fathers give them advice that shows us that they have complementary strengths. So Achilles is the better fighter. His mother is a goddess. Patroclus is older and a little bit more prudent. Um, and, and Achilles should listen to Patroclus. Um, so they need each other and they're, they're mutually strong together. Achilles is lament for Patroclus and the narrator's description of his ongoing grief underlines, I think, how deeply Achilles was shaped by this common life with his friend, which is now sundered by Patroclus' death. So that's Pothe. 
So like the other warriors on the battlefield, Achilles' loss of Patroclus drives him to anger and deeds of vengeance. So we know that before the time frame of the Iliad, Achilles would spare suppliants on the battlefield. Um, we know that he even once buried an enemy that he had killed um, in the enemy's armor, which was very unusual. In the Iliad, the only thing we ever see is stripping, an attempt to strip the armor and take it, even if you give the body back for burial. But we know that in this previous time, Achilles buried an enemy in his armor. We see these dimensions of Achilles. After the death of Patroclus, Achilles takes no suppliance. He's killing indiscriminately on the battlefield. And the setup and progress of battle is kind of takes over the last third of the poem. All of Book 19, there's a kind of old school uh, commentator who says that all they talk about is whether or not they're going to eat. <laughs> um, nothing is accomplished, which I think is very descriptive of where Achilles is. They're just they're setting up this story of longing. Um, and he, so he kills all these people, kills all these, um, anyway. Um, it goes on and on. And after he kills Hector, so he kills Hector in book 22. And there the parallels, I think, end. So we have this pattern of loss and anger throughout the Iliad. Achilles fits into the pattern. But then it changes or it explodes or something because even though he's killed Hector, he, he's still all over the place. So other warriors claim that their deeds of vengeance balance out the loss of their dead companion, as we saw in handout one, um, even healing them of some portion of their grief. Achilles' story shows just the opposite. So after he kills Hector, he continues to pursue vengeance on the dead corpse. He, he drags it in the dust, not just once, but multiple times. He performs a huge funeral for Patroclus. He even sacrifices 12 Trojan young men on Patroclus' funeral pyre. He throws this huge funeral games, um, kind of in honor of Patroclus. And in theory, the funeral games seem to be like a, a custom that would help restore community after this loss, some of that, that former togetherness. And after the funeral games, nothing has changed for Achilles. And this is handout seven, I know it's very long, but I think it really captures this full picture of where everyone else is and where Achilles is. So this is the first line of book 24. And the assembly was dissolved. So that was the group doing the funeral games. And the army scattered, each man going to his swift ship. Sorry, this is handout seven. Um, and they turned their thoughts to enjoying supper and sweet sleep. But Achilles wept as he remembered his beloved comrade, nor did sleep take him, sleep the all-conqueror, but he kept tossing back and forth, longing for Patroclus' manhood and good strength, and all the deeds he accomplished with him, and the griefs he suffered, cutting away through wars of men and difficult ways. And as he remembered, he was shedding swelling tears, lying first on his side, then on his back, then face down. Then rising up, he kept pacing back and forth along the shore of the sea. Nor was dawn ever unseen by him when she appeared over the sea and shore. But he kept yoking his swift horses to his chariot and kept binding Hector to drag him behind the chariot. And when three times he had dragged him around the tomb of Minoetius' dead son, was Patroclus, Again, he would stop at his shelter, and he would leave him lying stretched out, faced first in the dust. So Achilles is here stuck. He's stuck in a cycle of grief and anger, and this grief is clearly fueled 
in the language of a poem by this Pothe for what is irrevocably lost. So in my book title, I call this longing futile. And what I mean by that is the longing for Patroclus's shared life stirs up um, action, but the action can't achieve that. It can't achieve what's longed for by the longing, which is Achilles alive again, sharing, um, sorry, Patroclus alive again, sharing Achilles' life. Achilles wants the old life restored, the rupture mended, the wholeness restored. So my father and I have called our shared talk tonight presence and absence. And the ancient half of the story underscores the absence. Although in many ways this story is awful, um, it is also, I think, important. Understanding that the desire to do things after the loss of someone are to some degree driven by an impossible yearning to restore presence. Killing Hector does not bring Patroclus back. But neither does anything else that Achilles does after Patroclus' death. His fasting from food, his elaborate funeral games, his 12 days of cyclical sleeplessness, pacing the shore, dragging the corpse around Patroclus' funeral pyre. Achilles cannot get out of this cycle of grief and anger until somehow he lets go. This release comes later in Book 24, when Hector's father, the aging king Priam, visits Achilles by night. In fact, the gods send Priam. They're tired of Achilles' ongoing desire for vengeance, which is going nowhere. Help. Um, so with this divine help, Priam slips into Achilles' shelter without being seen, and then just kind of appears at the feet of Achilles. And his sudden presence stuns all of them. No one is more stunned than Achilles. His hands are kissed by this enemy who grips his knees in a ritual gesture of supplication. That's how you supplicate them when you grab them behind the knees, touch their face. Um, and he pleads for the body of his son. Priam's opening words beg Achilles to think of his father, who's a man old like him, also besieged by sorrows, but comforted to know that Achilles is still alive. Whereas he, Priam, is completely unfortunate since he has lost so many sons in the war and now has lost Hector, Troy's last defender. The final words of Priam's plea are handout eight. He says, But revere the gods, revere the gods, Achilles, and pity me, remembering your father, yet I am more piteous indeed, and I have endured what no other mortal on earth has yet endured to draw to my lips the hands of the man who killed my son. And Achilles is moved to weep, and Priam also weeps, and they both weep for their separate losses. Priam for Hector, Achilles now for his father, now for Patroclus, and together their shared yet separate weeping rolls up through the house, and it's, that's in hand of mine. Although this is not the presence Achilles yearns for, Achilles' ongoing desire for weeping leaves him, which I give you in handout 10. In the scenes that follow, Achilles admonishes Priam, sit in this chair, eat a meal, you need to sleep. Um, all these things that Achilles had been doing, he, he says them, he says to Priam, there's no prexis, which I don't know how to translate, it's this Greek word for accomplishment or something. There's no, nothing is accomplished by endless weeping. So that's what Achilles says to Priam. Nothing is accomplished by endless weeping. And then Achilles 
goes outside and he wraps up Hector's corpse and lifts it onto Priam's wagon with his own hands. And then the two enemies eat together and they take delight in their food. And then um, after dinner, they sit and admire one another mutually. They're um, marveling at their different excellences. And this is handout 11. But when they had put away their desire for drink and food, truly Priam gazed with wonder at Achilles, how great he was, of what quality, for he was like the gods in appearance. And Achilles gazed with wonder at Priam, looking upon his noble appearance and listening to his speech. But when they had taken their delight in looking at one another. It's not clear exactly what in this scene springs that lock in Achilles, so to speak, that allows him to release the corpse. But the scene of shared food, drink, and admiration suggests to me that Achilles' desire for shared life with Patroclus includes, to some degree, a desire for shared life as such. And in a kind of marvelous way, Achilles engages that impossible desire for Patroclus in a new, transferred, possible form, living this moment of shared life with the father of his enemy. After Priam brings Hector's corpse back to Troy and the Trojans perform an extensive funeral, the poet uh, narrates three different laments, that of Hector's wife, his mother, and Helen, actually, she ends the poem. Um, but I, I wanna look at the lament of Hector's mother, because it really summarizes Achilles' story in two lines. Um, handout 12. She's speaking to the corpse of Hector. And she says, he kept dragging you around the tomb of his companion, Patroclus, whom you killed, but not even so did he raise him up. She knows exactly what's going on. And I have to say, I figured out all this stuff about Pothi and why I thought all this was happening, and then I read those two months and I said, oh, I <laughs> already knew that. <laughs> so, and I think part of the point of this is that I'm highlighting something that's unique and uniquely told in the story of Achilles, but I think the Iliad suggests that any loss could give rise to such a story, right? That it's, that Hecabe understands what's going on, that this, this is anybody's story that grief begets action precisely because losses are permanent and something we must live with. So as food for thought as we walk away, we can think. Grief is not something that can be solved by your own action, but perhaps release from cycles of grief, anger, and limitless desires can be stirred up by encountering others who suddenly come upon us in all of their humanity and invite us to new connections, newly shared life, just as Achilles and Priam share food, drink, and contented wonder in this brief moment at the poem's end. Thank you. begin by saying, giving my great thanks for this invitation, uh, and, and I think it's a great honor to me to get to give a talk with Emily. Um, 
And also, I mean, what a, what a beautiful school, what a beautiful place this is. I can think of no place I'd rather be in the last hours of Standard Time. <laughs> standard Time is the best kind. <laughs> so Emily and I are each speaking to you on the matter of presence and absence in grief. Um, she seems to me to have the marvelously formed mind of a classical scholar who uses her scholarship in profoundly humane ways, as you have just heard with regard to the grief of Achilles. My, expert, my expertise is more or less theology in everyday life. So this part of our talk will be more personal rather than the unpacking of a great text. In a sense, this joint talk now goes in reverse, looking at an instance, mine, personal, and then moving a bit to some classical texts, uh, namely scripture, for understanding. So Emily's mother, my wife, Susan, died when she was 57. Her brain tumor had been discovered nearly 20 years earlier. It was successfully treated. The cancer never returned. What we did not know at the time, but can see in retrospect, however, is that the treatments that cured her cancer also left her with a slowly developing brain disease, never exactly diagnosed, but having to do with the white matter. As a result of this, certain brain functions, such as those having to do with planning and communication, gradually diminished, and ultimately her brain was unable to keep her body going. Now, as a priest, I have talked and prayed with many people who have lost spouses. Sometimes absence occurs suddenly. He is working out at the gym in his customary, vigorous way. He sits for a moment on a chair. Someone notices. A few hours later, he is pronounced dead of an aneurysm. He may have been dead even before the ambulance arrived. Other times, it seems more mental than physical. She turns on the gas burner but walks away, forgetting to put on her tea kettle. She is talking with sweet familiarity and then she looks up with sudden fierce anger, not knowing who this man is who is sitting with her, not recognizing her husband of 50 years. The absence I experienced was neither of those. Susan was never a danger to herself, never lost her recognition of people, never lost a rather sweet disposition, and she did not die suddenly and unprepared. Along the way, Susan saw a neuropsychologist, a species of human I had not known existed. <laughs> he talked with her, studied her MRIs and the reports from her neurologist, and gave her some tests. Then he met with us and said, that Susan's deficits were in the executive function. This part of the brain is what is working when you execute various tasks in your life. Susan was not able to do so. She would focus her attention on the immediate thing that she most desired. A crossword puzzle, for instance, uh, rather than setting the table or taking some needed exercise. The neuropsychologist looked at me and said, you have to be her executive function. This was a hard thing to take in. Spouses have a fundamental equality of friendship 
that respects the integrity of the other. One spouse should not organize the day of another, ought not to say, you have to do this before you do that, ought not to make out to-do lists before going to work, and so forth. Of course, I desired to give Susan the best love I could, and I saw that for her good, I needed to do this. But the necessity that made me do it was fundamentally that, in a sense, she had become somewhat absent. Part of her, though only a part, was absent. Whenever any of us is sick, there is a sense in which we become absent. We don't often take this in because sickness is generally transient and the withdrawal we go through is not severe. Nonetheless, this is the heart of the meaning of sickness. It is one of the things I love most about Jesus, and we have many stories of it. He healed the sick so that they could be present to others. Sickness itself is not total absence. We see this in beautiful ways when people bring a sick person to Jesus, as, for instance, in the opening of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus sees faith there. Uh, he sees faith. I think we could say he sees love and hope also. I can say more about that parable, but it, it, it's one of the few where Jesus both forgives sins and heals and kind of says they're the same thing. Although Susan slipped away from us gradually over those decades, there's a further sense in which she was never absent. I came face to face to this with this when she was in her final hospitalization, which turned out to be nearly two months in duration, and through which she never regained the ability to speak, and for most of which she was unresponsive. I was leaving her one evening, touched her forehead, touched uh, her hand, said a prayer, and even though there was no physical response, I knew she was there. Another time, leaving, uh, this on the eve of them putting in a, uh, a feeding tube, uh, I prayed, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. You know, I, the, the, the serious adult version of that prayer goes on, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. She was there because her body was there. Our bodies, theologians tell us, are the way we are present one to another. Susan was present because her body, and since it was still alive, it was her body, presented herself to me and anyone else who came into the room. Her body presented herself to the world. I felt that, and it was an important lesson. If she had had a different kind of brain disease, such that she took me to be someone other than her husband, nonetheless, this would still have been true. She would still be there. In such a case, one could say her brain, that physical organ, was failing, but one should not say that she was not there. Presence endures whenever we have a body, despite any absence introduced by the sickness of the body. 
Now, final revelation on all this came to me the second year after Susan died. I was assigned to preach on Good Friday, uh, on the fourth of the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. This is something, it's an old tradition that's maintained, or was maintained at St. Thomas Church, where I was in New York City. Three-hour service on Good Friday, Fifth Avenue, people washing in and out to the thing. Um, seven last words are the seven things in the four Gospels that Jesus says while he's on the cross, just put together in a sort of traditional order. Three are from Luke, three are from John. There's one. Only one thing Jesus says from the cross. It's the same in Matthew and Mark. And this was my text. It was assigned to me. So thanks a lot, Father. <laughs> my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, taking on the sins of the world, goes down to the deepest pits of human experience. Pits are places where something is missing that ought to be there, places, that is, of absence. Each one of us, in our own way, has experience of the pits, different pits, different kinds of suffering, mental, physical, a spouse, a parent, a friend. Jesus knows them all. He weeps when facing the tears of the sisters of Lazarus, his friend who has died. Remember that from John 11, Jesus comes, Mary's weeping. Where is the body? He asks. Mary says, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus comes to see the pits of human life. But what Jesus does is he goes deeper than any of us have to go. However, the great, however great the pain and grief in your life, Jesus is with you and has known more. And he's gone further, as far as any person could go. In the deepest human pit, strung on the cross, he feels the worst thing of all. The worst thing of all is God forsakenness. Matthew says he screamed on the cross. And he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But these words were expressed as a question. And when I saw that, it was a wonderful discovery. In the furthest extremity of human pain, Jesus was still able to speak to God. For a question presupposes someone who is being spoken to. Although Jesus experiences God forsakenness, he is not utterly forsaken. He is able to address a question to God. Even when God seems completely absent, he is still there, available, to be questioned. In some minor way, I experienced this myself, at Susan's death particularly, but also before and since. That surrounding this whole human experience, that includes loss, the absence of people who were once present, surrounding all the tears of things, Surrounding two, one can see the joys and smiles and memories. Surrounding it all is a presence who is real, who cannot be escaped. 
and who can ever be spoken to.